Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, Inspiring People and Places, I am uh, very excited to have today's guest. A lot of different topics to hit on, but I'll start by saying he's one of the reasons I am at. Our relationship goes back, I guess, 14 years, has been a friend, an advisor, recruited me here, a mentor, and, and one of the smarter people I get to interact with. So excited to welcome to the show, John Nelson. John, how are we doing, buddy? BJ, how you doing, brother? Never better. Excited for the conversation. I got a lot. Um, I got a lot for you. I just I just rode over here on transit to try to get to you <laughs> from your beloved city of Philadelphia. And there's a there's a lot of improvement that could be made there. Amen. I think there's a lot of work for you. <laughs> we'll see if we can get our hands around it. John, you're a listener to the show, so you know how we started out. Tell us who you are and your current role and organization and what you're what you're doing in that role. Absolutely. So I, I am the associate dean uh, at Carnegie Mellon University. Specifically, I shouldn't say I'm the associate dean. I, I am an associate dean, one of several at Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon University and most universities are, are big places. So the, the part that I inhabit at CMU is, is known as the Heinz College of Information Systems and Public Policy. And in that role, so I, because there's a number of associate deans, what specifically is your role um, there? Yeah, so so I'm not I'm not great. I must admit at at staying in sw- in a swim lane. So I have a pretty wide array of things that I oversee at the college, but one of them is is helping students with with their career journeys, and I think that may be a place where you'd like to explore today. Just sort of the, what the what the state of, of talent is and, and and what that's like trying to, well, I guess, I guess wed students with, 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 with the, the next step in their careers. It's a very exciting part of the job. One of the things I'd, I'd love to hit on while we're talking and, and I'd, I want to get to your career path, but I don't want to forget this is I know Uber came in there not too long ago to to steal some people and and really I think it was a talent arbitrage play on their part. So I'm curious about what is the the typical Heinz College student looking for in their in their career? What's the sexy industries to to that student body? Because and and then how is AI and machine learning and all of that playing into the future of work and where they're attracted? I don't want to hit on that yet. Can we can we put a pause, pause on that? It. All right, we're going to pause. And I'll tell that. you the I'll tell you the Uber story too if you're interested in that. Let's do it. Go okay. go with the Uber story and then we'll we'll jump back in time to your career path. So so what you're talking about is gosh, it's probably I'm going to say it's 8 or 9 years ago now, believe it or not, but Uber you know was booming in the tech industry. Yep. And set up a essentially an autonomous vehicle lab in the city of Pittsburgh because they wanted to they wanted to work with the the smart people at Carnegie Mellon that were working on driverless cars um so they set up shop in in Pittsburgh 
the other thing they they decided to do, and this was, I think it was front page of the Wall Street Journal, so it's not a um, it's not a secret. They, in one night, as I, as I understand it, came in and basically offered to triple the salaries of and 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 by the way, I'm I'm gonna this is I I don't know all this for a fact. This is sort of the the, the urban legend around it at Carnegie Mellon. So um, take it for what it's worth. But the the urban legend goes that they offered to triple the salaries of our entire essentially our entire robotics department. And they brought over, I can't remember how many it was, but I, I think it was, gosh, I think it was like, you know, over a hundred people overnight left the university and, and went over to Uber. Then I was told a year later, most of them had come back. So it didn't, it was, it was a really <laughs> interesting thing for us to contend with as an institution. We were not at all accustomed to a, to a corporate raid. Uh, but uh, but I think in the end, I think most of them decided that it it you know it was it was more um, to their liking to be back at CMU and I and I'm told they they came back. We have a thriving robotics institute today. I know that and probably good publicity for you guys. It was a it was certainly for the uh, I'm I'm sure for the president of the university and the and the folks that manage that particular department a, a very challenging um, set of circumstances and one that we were really not not accustomed to. Yeah. All right. So let's go back in time. I met you in, I want to say 2009, 2010 originally when you were at MCFA, but take us back to prior to MCFA, beginning of your career and your academic and experience and, and kind of your path, your career path. Happy to. I'll, I'll go even further back than, than there. I, I, I grew up about 30 miles outside of Philadelphia. Um, unfortunately, my parents split when I was a kid. It might be one of the things that the eighties will be known for Ronald Reagan and divorce. <laughs> uh, but I, I think I knew more kids that were in a, in a home with one parent than in a home with two. And I, I think there's trends of reverse, but that's uh, anyway, that was, that, that was the early part of my life. And, and what I didn't quite know then, but I know now is that we didn't have anything. I mean, we had orange juice and tap water, and we were only allowed to have the orange juice at breakfast. And to this day, I tell my wife that it's a funny thing, but I tell my wife that having drinks in the refrigerator is the only thing I ever need to feel wealthy. <laughs> What's it, well, we have a second refrigerator in our house because we have a lot of kids. And, and sometimes I just open it up and I look in there and I see seltzers and, and beer. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like I've arrived. Um, so so early career path I worked I worked menial jobs I worked I washed dishes I bagged groceries I mowed lawns I did whatever whatever I I could do as a as a young person but those days and that that privation and that those feelings that will never leave me and it's funny because my I grew up with my wife and so my sister and, and my wife tell me that when I talk about growing up and and all the privation they don't even know what I'm talking about uh, <laughs> But and they don't know why I talk about growing up that way because they were there too and it didn't feel that way at all to them. But it's it's how childhood sticks in my psyche, so I'm going with it. But anyway, I grew up playing a lot of sports, none of them well, and eventually did what all good Catholic boys from Philly do. I guess I, I went to Villanova University, and that was a that was a wonderful experience that uh, that I cherish and got involved in in the newspaper there and writing and uh, sports writing in particular and. Got to cover the basketball teams. That was that was pretty cool. And we were Harry we Kittles. Harry Kittles was the was the star back then. He, he was a year ahead of me. And a pre bunch Jay, of pre Jay Wright. 
I, I was not there when Jay Wright was there. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, I in my in my impertinent youth, I I penned an editorial asking for the the basketball coach at the time to be fired, and I and eventually he was. And, and I it's it's a funny thing because as a kid, you just I don't know what I was thinking. I now I see that as a livelihood and a guy that had a family and um, not real proud of it, but it's in print, it's out there. So so I guess I have to own it. But eventually, you're right. They hired Jay Wright, and the rest was history. They started winning national championships. But then after after Villanova, I, I went. Actually, this is a, a story I probably haven't told you. But the the only thing I really wanted to do coming out of Villanova was was join the military. And I tried I tried the Air Force first. I think maybe the Navy first. My dad was a Navy guy. I tried the Navy first, and they taught me. The military, I, I never went into the military, but the military taught me a couple of things about myself. The first, the Navy taught me that I have terrible eyesight. And the only job they, none of the jobs that I asked to be to be put into, would they let me have? They said I could be, the derogatory term was a pork chop. Basically, I could be the guy ordering ordering supplies on a ship because you didn't need good eyesight for that job. And so then I tried my hand at the Air Force and I'll never forget that they 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 give you a test where they show you a bunch of pictures of of the horizon in different orientations, mm-hmm. and then you have to choose from it. It's like multiple choice. You have to choose. Okay, if you were flying a plane and you this is the horizon you saw, what is the orientation of that plane in space? I'm telling you, BJ, I've never taken a. I, I'm still bewildered by it. I've never taken a test that I was less able to to deal with. I think I guessed on every one and. I don't remember what happened with the Air Force specifically, but I, I never went there. So I'm assuming they didn't, they, they had no interest in me after that. So I had to come up with a plan B. And I, the, the bottom line is I, 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 I thought, well, maybe I'm, maybe, maybe the military isn't for me. Maybe I'm more of an academic kind of guy. So I went to graduate school for, for public policy at, at Carnegie Mellon University, which of course eventually becomes a huge part of my story. Right. Uh, but but here also that, that that's where I think you and my paths start to cross because on my very first day at CMU as a grad student, I met the founder of your company, MCFA, Michael Furman, who was just another lonely grad student from Philly, and we became fast friends and are to this day. So after graduating from Carnegie Mellon, I always kept in touch with Michael, and and eventually ended up with him at MCFA when it was it was really just the two of us and maybe a few other people, but kind of, kind of started from almost nothing. And so I, I think it's worth diving into what those early years were. And, and you had worked at Honeywell prior, right? That's right. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to out of grad school, get a interview with Honeywell and they made me an offer for a really cool thing. It was a, it was like an early leadership development, early career leadership development type program where they rotate you every X number of months to a different role, different business unit. And, and that was an awesome experience, man. I, there really two things I learned there. One was the language of business in a big publicly mm-hmm. traded company. That was, it was incredibly important and remains so. And the second thing was they not only allowed me, but insisted that I travel the world on their dime. And I think I hit 15 countries in two years. So really a life-changing experience. Ended up spending seven years, I think, with Honeywell. And then, you know, of course, I kept this relationship with with Michael going. And 
eventually ended up, he started MCFA and about a year later I came over and, and, and as I mentioned, we grew it from almost nothing to, huh. he'll, uh, he'll be embarrassed about this, but I, I think, listen, it's, it's the truth. He told me that we had 15 contracts. So I was excited. I said, oh man, I'm going to join this startup, but it's already like got a lot of momentum. And I came over day one and I realized something important about entrepreneurs. He wasn't lying to me, but what he was telling me was sort of rooted in his boundless optimism about what he thought we could do, <laughs> get 15 contracts. <laughs> what we actually had, I discovered the hard way, was one contract <laughs> with one customer. And, but, but I hung in there with him and, and, and it, and it worked out a okay. But, but I did learn about, about the importance of sort of being irrationally optimistic as an entrepreneur, I think. Scrappy days. So this is 2003 ish. That would have been, this would have been, so he, he started the company right at the end of 03. So really he, he did it himself as a one man band for, for the year of 2004. And then I joined him in 2005. Okay. And then right around then was BRAC 2005 and he was pretty well positioned. So you got to see, I came here in 2012. You got to see 2005 from really scrappy startup up through some significant growth in the early years. Talk to us about everything that was going on then. Yeah, man, we, I think you're right. He was, he and we were well positioned when, when the military had this, this, the DOD had this major initiative to essentially to, to consolidate its just massive real estate footprint. And the, the form that took was sort of, um, you know, you know, I don't, collapsing is the wrong word, but is merging different bases together, eliminating activities that were redundant. And they needed a lot of of consulting around, you know, how do you merge billions of dollars of infrastructure? What's the best what, What's the best way to 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 do that and, and get the savings from that, but also make sure that you can still maintain your 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 you know your your fighting posture? Yeah, still execute the mission. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that that was that was a lot of the early days was was working on on those some of those those big military projects, and we got involved in a lot of. A lot of interesting things, mostly with the army back then. So, so that was great. At the same time, the company was growing. We we just kept, you know, every time our, our clients would kind of have a need for something, we just put our hand up and say, hey, we'll do that. We'll do that. We'll do that. It was very, very opportunistic, very scrappy. And uh, listen, we started this business in a in a bedroom in his house with, with no employees. And I blinked and I don't know, it's probably four years later, we had 40 people and an office and contracts and mouths to feed. And it was, so it was pretty exciting. There was, there was a lot of growth in those early days. Yeah. So right around that time, I, I am coming in, um, 2012, I joined number of things had happened. Brack obviously had a big, uh, big impact on the company. Uh, like you said, base realignment and closure energy was starting to take off and there was a lot of a lot of activity around resource efficiency management and decreasing utility costs and energy savings performance contracts and you, you rode these waves i come in in june of 2012 and in september or october of 2012 sequestration happens brack ends and maybe something else and we were in we were in some rough waters 
Can, can I tell that story at least as it exists in my psyche? Yes. Okay. So company was thriving 2010, 2011, 2012. All those headwinds that you mentioned really hit us like a ton of bricks. And the company, in what seemed almost overnight, was essentially cut in half. And we had to let, this was the, for me, this was one of the toughest things is, you know, when I was in a big company, you do a corporate downsizing. Often those things were used for, basically for eliminating lower performers. What I, what happened at MCFA is we actually had to cut into muscle. We had to let some, what I thought were very, very quality people go. That was, so that was not fun because Listen, we'd hired every single person carefully, gotten to know them, knew their families. It, it was a that was some really hard times that that sort of beset us in a hurry, and and I remember thinking, all right, what what are we what will we do next here? And I thought I was still you know pretty pretty young young in my career, mid thirties, and I thought we we have a bunch of people that I care about here, and my outside options are probably still pretty good. I wonder if I should should jump off the ship in the in and I what I thought was well that that could save people's jobs that could and, and I it's it's interesting to to reflect on that now because I what I realized is it it felt much more like a family almost than a business um so I so I decided to to leave and, and get off the books and and the rest is history but before I left I did one very important thing I think do you know what that is I'm not sure. I hired you, my man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and everybody here at this at this awesome company that you've you've now built are 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 better off for it. I appreciate it. I I would not have come here if I I remember having beers at Hudson Street Stackhouse for anybody that lives in Baltimore. We had beers down the street from our townhouse and I was like, "Man, I got to work with this guy." And then you left me. <laughs> I did, but we stayed. Uh, we stayed in touch. We did, and you helped me navigate those early years, kind of integrating and finding my finding my footing here. But you went off to Carnegie Mellon at that time, and what did you think you were getting when you went into the the academic world? I didn't have a clue. Here's what I knew. What I what I knew. What I knew is that I didn't know what I wanted to do next. Frankly, I wasn't even sure that it wouldn't just be coming back to MCFA after it, after they righted the ship. But I, I just, I truly didn't know. But what I did know was it's probably a good thing to get close to a lot of smart people if if you can. Yep. Um, smart people have good ideas. Hopefully, I can put them together with my good ideas, and something neat emerges. And Carnegie Mellon had that in 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 spades. So the job kind of opened up, fell in my lap. I, to this day, have no idea why they hired me. I had no experience in higher education. I had no experience whatsoever in the particular job they wanted me to do, but somehow convinced them that that, that I was at least adequate and, and they took a chance. And, and so here I am. So a little over 10 years later, a couple of more kids than you left the area <laughs> with to go out to Pittsburgh before you came back. What What are some of the highlights, learning points of of your time? At CMU, well, I think, I mean, there's so there's I learned so many things there. It's 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 such a different atmosphere to to try to 
manage and mentor in than in kind of a small company startup environment, that's for sure, or or the big company kind of Fortune 50 environment that I that I started in. So completely new experience, kind of a kind of a new adventure. The the particular place though that I that I work at Carnegie Mellon, I mentioned it's it's the Heinz College of Information Systems and Public Policy. It's it, you think about information systems and public policy, and that is a that combination is a head scratcher for many. But you know, I, I like to say that at CMU you can't really hit a nine iron in any direction and not hit a technologist. It's kind of like we weave technology into almost everything we do in ways that the other places don't. But this combination of information systems and public policy is is truly unique in higher education. There's no other institution quite like it. And so if you think about, you know, what happens at the intersection of those domains, you know, cyber attacks, election interference, uh, fake news, electronic copyright. I just I just saw that the New York Times is is suing OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. Responsible AI, autonomous systems, all these things that are kind of headline topics now, we kind of feel like we've been in this space for 50 years. Uh, and now the world just kind of woke up and realized that, uh, that it was an interesting place to be. And, and a lot of the, the, the kind of the major um, challenges of our age, I think, are at the convergence of, of public policy and technology. And so that's if there was kind of a number one learning, it's just it's pretty exciting to have, have been able to sit at that at that intersection. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> the water is frigid. So. It, let's let's jump back to we put a pin on the the career journey and so at that intersection you guys are seeing it and now the whole world you you become probably one of the most attractive partners to corporate America that there is talk to us about what's going on in the the average CMU student's mind as they're navigating their career and and what are the lessons you learned in it yeah, great question. I, I I don't I don't know the average CMU student. Never met one that's average. <laughs> these are uh, I mean, one neat thing is is just that these are these are for the most part extraordinary people, and and it's it's really neat to it, it's heartening to to see to hear their stories and to to be able to help them out in some small way as they as they launch their careers. I particularly see students that are in our graduate programs some in, in the public policy space, some in more technology-oriented degree programs like cybersecurity and um, healthcare analytics and so forth. The, it's, a, it's a neat place to be. I, I think, well, listen, helping students in, in their job process is incredibly rewarding. And I, don't, I, don't, I, I want to specify here, I don't take credit for doing that because we do that as an organization at scale. And my team, who is just absolutely skilled at this, does this job at scale. But I personally don't. <laughs> I, what I do is I, I sometimes, once in a while, I help students one-on-one. Um, and this is really important because it's, it's really the most gratifying thing I've been able to do is help a small handful of individuals launch their adult lives. But my, but my team hates when I do it. <laughs> because they're trying to do it at scale. And, and when you do it at scale, like they do, they, they naturally worry about fairness. They don't want you know, a particular person getting an introduction to, to my network when that wasn't available to, to other students. So I sort of get where they're coming from, but, right. but I can't help it. You know, I grew up in a, in a home where my mom always told me that 
I think she told me daily that life isn't fair and there's nothing on my birth certificate that says that I have to get what my sister gets. So I, I think that's, that, that lives deep within me. Deep seated. Yeah, man. Um, uh, so, so anyway, working with students and, and their perception of how the world works can be, it, it can be really interesting. One example that it, that it always stick with me, there was a, there was a young woman who, who sought me out. She, the career search just wasn't working out for her. She wasn't getting interviews. She wasn't, um, even when she would get an interview, she wasn't, she wasn't getting job offers and she sought me out, somehow found me. She sought me out and she, and she showed me her resume. And she was almost in tears about not getting any job offers. Her friends were all getting job offers. And I didn't even look at her resume. I just, I just said, sit down, please tell me about yourself. And it turned out that this, this young woman was, she had come over to the United States from China at a young age, maybe, maybe middle school or maybe even earlier, maybe, maybe elementary school. And I, I have kids that are that are that age, as you do. I just, her journey was so incredibly amazing to me. She came over here. She didn't know the language. She separated from her immediate family and she came over and worked with kind of um, distant family in a diner in the desert in Nevada. I always remember this. Wow. And learned English by working at this diner in, in Nevada that her, that her, I don't know, aunts and uncles, I guess, guess owned. And she was going into these job. And the reason she was so upset, she would go into these job interviews and basically she was just thinking that she was no good because all these incredible Carnegie Mellon students around her all, all had A pluses and uh, were taking all these, these amazing courses. And, you know, she would go in there and almost apologize for the B she got in statistics or something. <laughs> and, and so her problem was not what she thought. She thought her problem was she couldn't compete with the people around her, but she didn't appreciate that she was in this sort of really elevated um, academic situation and was letting it get her down and and not telling her story. So I said, I said, let's get this straight. You Nevada desert, worked at a diner, no English, no immediate family. You came from 12,000 miles away and you want to talk to them about the B you got in your stats course. Come on. That is not your story. Your story is you're the hardest working, bravest person that they've ever met. And they should want you on their team for that. And the best part about that is the company that agrees with you on that is exactly the company that you want to work for because they value what you are. And I, so this girl came to me. So that was the conversation. What was, a great message. Well, it, it was true. It's heartfelt. I, I, I believe it now to this day. She sought me out about three months later. It was getting close to graduation. She sought me out and she, she came up to me and she told me, I got this incredible job offer from I can't remember what company, some great company, might've been Amazon. And she said, uh, and just thanked me profusely, BJ, I'm telling you, I'm looking at this young woman. I didn't even know who she was. I didn't, I wasn't putting it together that she wow. was the one who came to visit me. And the, and the reason was her energy and her was so infectious and her, and her confidence was so high that it wasn't even the same person that I, that I had met with three months prior. I didn't even recognize her. That's amazing. So that so in that one story, like that is that is the reward of the job. I I think that's been the most incredible thing about about this 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 role and uh, and being able to help young people kind of find their way. Yeah, what gratification! My my head jumps to what, if any, is the is the company 
or the industry that the CMU grad wants to go to. You, you know, MBAs out of Wharton all want to go to McKinsey to cut their teeth. Where is it that the average or the typical CMU grad wants to go to? I'll say there's, how about we call modal? I'll say that the, the modal student that we see will often want to, particularly the in the more technology-oriented degrees, will very much tend towards kind of big brand name tech companies in Silicon Valley yep. or increasingly tech companies or investment banks in, in New York City. So, so if you kind of did a heat map of where our students go, heavy, heavy concentrations in, in those places. And sort of, sort of because of the, the, that interest, you could probably guess where the other places they go are. Um, a good number go to Seattle, also Austin, Austin, Texas, exactly. So that that's the that is generally what our what our students at least come in wanting to do. Now, part of that is is rooted in we see a lot of international students, um, students who were not born in the U.S. They want to come make a life in the U.S. and, and um, get off access to the U.S. job market. And it's what they tell me is that it's it's sort of a a, a brag a brag point, I guess to be able to call home and say to uh, you know to your mom and dad, hey, I'm working at Oracle or Amazon or Google or one of these big name tech companies. Um, so that's uh, that's often where they're drawn to. Interesting. All right, you've been in big business. You were in scrappy small business. You've been in academ- academia, uh, and we'll get into some of your nonprofit work uh, here in a minute. But Talk to me about a leadership lesson or two that that kind of stick with you through your career that that you can pass on to our audience. It's a good question. Leadership lesson. I I think uh, one of the uh, one of the toughest things I mentioned the the history at MCFA. One of the toughest things I think in that experience for me that that lingers is. I don't think I'll use the pronoun we because I don't think we collectively at MCFA did a great job of of risk management of really thinking through what are the kinds of things that could take us out. But really, I feel primarily it's it's really more I I feel primarily responsible for just not being able to see around the corner well enough, and that is not something. You know, I went to business school later. We didn't talk about it, but I I don't remember in business school really talking about risk and looking around the corner and and the fact that a leader has to be a maybe a risk manager first and foremost mm. uh, and so the kind of the the you know i think the lesson of of protecting your six and kind of really thinking hard about what are the things that could take you out that's something that'll always stick with me and, and continues to to this day that's an interesting one and not and not one that- to your point, not one a lot of people talk about because a lot of leadership is about optimism and looking into the future. And it, you know, even now, I know that the days that I am either faced with risks or I have to think about them, I'm less optimistic about what we can accomplish just because you take yourself to what could go wrong and you become a little less enthusiastic. But to your point, when you analyze them and then you either accept them, you manage them, you mitigate them, you insure against them, you do something, you know that you've you've tried to quantify and qualify. And 
and hopefully take actions to continuously. One of the main reasons we, I think I learned that because I lived maybe not shotgun, maybe in the back seat as you, Michael and Becky navigated that at the time. And I said, this sucks. I don't ever want to have to do this. And you can either paralyze yourself and say, I just don't want to grow a company then. Or you can see that your best defense is a good offense and grow and diversify to ensure against that. So that to your point, not one, not one client, not one contract, not one industry can take you out. And there are days where I feel like I can't grow fast enough to avoid that. And then you get into new risks of where are we finding the next pool of talent to continue to grow the company? So risks come in all form, not, not a topic I get to talk much about, but I, I love that you brought that up. Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting story. I hope I don't butcher the details, but essentially in the early 90s, there was a lot of turmoil at, uh, at Solomon Brothers, the, the investment New York Investment yep. Bank. And Warren Buffett, I guess, took a controlling interest in the investment bank when they were, when they were really struggling hmm. and became, actually, I think he actually became CEO. And when he became CEO, he declared himself not CEO, but chief risk officer. And that was before, long before that was a term you would ever have heard. So that 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 stuck with me. That listen, if if Warren Buffett, <laughs> it, you could you could do worse than following Warren Buffett's approach, I guess. <laughs> but that is of all the Warren Buffett stories, that that is the one that stuck with me. I think because it had resonance after uh, after what I saw. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Inspiring people and places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service disabled, veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people and places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. All right, we're going to switch gears. I mentioned nonprofit. I love to hear what's going on outside of your, your career. So talk to us about family life, sports, and maybe some nonprofit or other interests. Absolutely. Well, the uh, probably the the most important thing in my life is is that I have six children. Yes, six. They're interestingly there. I, I mentioned before I played sports growing up, but badly. They're they're all athletes, or or at least look like they're going to turn out that way. But they're mom's, just, mom's genes, apparently. I, I, no doubt about it, hundred <laughs> uh, percent. I I credit her entirely with with everything good in in the kids. So 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 you know we we have a very exciting household raising six kids between the ages of three and fourteen. I actually write a I actually write a Substack about what it's like to I've had so many people ask me about what it's like to have that many kids that I decided to uh, to write a Substack about it. So maybe we could put it in the show notes or something. We will. We're gonna we're gonna we're yeah. gonna increase your. It's like the Oprah effect when you love appear it. on the MCFA podcast. All of a sudden, you're gonna have a thousand subscribers. I love that. It's a little bit anyway. It's a little bit of a tongue in cheek. Um, essays that I write about, about being a dad in this, in this age of privilege and overindulgence, but it's, we're, we're having a lot of fun. And I, I think my, my, my kids hate the blog, but I, hopefully, hopefully in one time day come to see it. Yeah. As something, yeah. something the, the archives. That's right. That's right. So, so that's, that's a, a huge part of, of my life. The, the other thing that, that I've, I've gotten into lately 
is um, a number of years ago, I, I ran for a local school board. And uh, that was a really interesting experience, both rewarding and bruising experience. But it gave me, I think I've always had a sort of a, a fondness and appreciation for education. And, 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 and having done that, that stint on the school board only deepened that. So my newest, the newest thing that I've, I've gotten engaged with is an organization called uh, the Freedoms Foundation at Valley Forge, which is a, it's a nonprofit actually founded by, by Dwight Eisenhower before he became president of the United States. So after he saved the free world and before he became president of the United States, Dwight, Dwight Eisenhower was not, was not sitting still. He, was, he became president of Columbia University. And at the same time, he, he set up this, this foundation whose job it is to educate K-12 students on effectively the values, the, the rights and responsibilities of, of American citizens. And he, this was incredibly near and dear to, to Ike's heart because of what he had seen in, in World War II. And he knew how fragile the blessings that we have are. And if we don't revere them and teach them and uh, reinforce them and reiterate them, you know, it can, it can, it can disappear in, a, in an instant. Um, and so that, that's really what he was, he and, and the other founders of the, the foundation were trying to guard against. So now here we are, I think, uh, 75 years uh, later, still a thriving organization and uh, and I've joined the board of that organization. I'm very proud that we educate several thousand K to 12 students every year from across the country, come to our beautiful campus in, in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and learn more about the founding and more learn more importantly about the the ideals that this country was founded upon. Do the K to 12 students get educated at your Valley Forge campus, or is there a program elsewhere? They do. They get educated at our campus. There's a lot of, it's classroom learning, but it's also experiential where we have a lot of sort of character reenactors will come in and, and do some, some interesting exercises with them. You get to meet Jefferson and Washington and Franklin and others. And, but then also what's nice about this location is our, our campus actually sits adjacent to Valley Forge National Historic Park. And uh, so, so a lot of the, the program takes, takes place over in the in in the national park and then we also bust them to various historic sites in the area of course um philadelphia is, is very close so they get to experience independence hall and many of the other sites um, downtown as well so it's uh it's both experiential and classroom in, in our programs it's awesome all right rapid fire questions favorite or most gifted book Favorite or most gifted book? There's a new book out. It's an audio book only called, it'll come to me, called Playing to Win by yeah. Mike, Michael Lewis, famous author. Michael Lewis. Is oh, one yeah. of Michael Lewis did an audible only book on uh, youth softball. So girls softball. And I have a daughter who's very, very committed to softball. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a big part of our lives. And Michael Lewis's daughter also was, and he wrote an audiobook talking about the industry of, of kind of youth sports and also their kind of narrow experience within it. I think his daughter ended up getting a, a big time division one scholarship. And he talks about the sort of the excesses and indulgences of, of parents around, around that proposition. Um, super interesting 
for not just for people who are involved with softball, but anyone who has kids who's in, who are involved today in youth sports, which have changed so drastically from from what you probably grew up with. So I thought that was a great book, and and I've and I've uh, gifted that one a, a few times. My my father in law give him a shout out. He says that men fathers have ruined youth sports. And what what's the other thing he says? I'll just say youth sports for now. I'm I'm, I'm slipping there. It's gonna, uh, I agree with you. Your father or your father in law? Father in law. Yeah, I think your father-in-law is is wise. The it's I, I coach a lot of sports now too, as you might imagine, and it's it, there's just some strange things have taken over, and it's gotten awfully expensive too. That's the other unfortunate part about it is I, I'm not sure. In addition to the excesses that you're talking about, it's excessively expensive, and so what that means is you know I'm not entirely sure that the very best athletes are the ones competing for those those scholarships that everyone craves. Yeah. How about favorite quotes? Favorite quotes. Well, I love the one by John Adams about the the American Revolution. That it, it the American Revolution was. I'm a, I'm going to mess it up, but th- that it it lived in the hearts and the minds of the people. Mm. His point was, it wasn't a war. It wasn't a document. It lived in the hearts and the minds of the people. I like it. If you could have dinner with three people that are alive, who would they be? I think I, I've heard you ask this question to other people, and I think I'm going to go uh, in, a, in a somewhat different direction here. I would be very interested to have dinner with someone I didn't know at all, but my great-great-grandfather. And I don't actually pick him out for any reason other than that he was about a hundred years ahead of me. Okay. And then at that same dinner, I, I'm kind of a history buff as you as you you might be gathering from some of this conversation. So he that would be really interesting and, and to to sort of hear what he thought about the world and and the sorts of concerns he had. But at that same dinner, I would love to also have my great great grandson there. Hmm. And I think the I, I I'm I'm a little afraid of the latter. I think I could have a great conversation with my great great grandfather because <laughs> I could I could place him in history and I could really I'd love to dig. Like the the great great grandson is a little scarier to me only because I'd, I'd be nervous that well that maybe that we meant nothing to him. Mm. And I because what I what I'd like to see is the decisions that 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 we made. How did they? sort of carry on and, and situate the people that come after us in history. So I don't, so it's not um, famous people I'm so interested in. It's, it's really just a lineage. And then if I could pick one more person, I'd probably take his great, great grandson. And sort of start to span centuries and see, you know, what, yeah. what different things we thought about and what, but importantly, the decisions we made, how does that help the people who come after us situate in their lives? Are they rich? Are they poor? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they, are they good husbands? Are they good dads? Are they, you know, all that? I'd be really, I think would be just fascinating. You, you, you flipped the script on me. That's, that's an interesting, yeah, a unique answer. And uh, I've, I've never thought for whatever reason into the future like that. Uh, but it leads into our next question, which is, what do you want on your tombstone and how do you want to be remembered? Um, 
this this question makes me incredibly uncomfortable, and I think that's probably telling. Uh, I don't like to think about it, but but what I know is that I see in my in my six kids, I see sort of the um, one thing that, that that being a parent does, I, I think, is hopefully you see some some good things that you're passing on, but you also your your whatever your flaws are, whatever your deficiencies are. They really just just come alive and, and are and are in your face and, and you're confronted with those. I, I hope that that my legacy is that they are on balance. No one's perfect and they won't be perfect and their kids won't be perfect, but I hope on balance that they are good, caring, service-oriented, community-oriented, civic, civic-minded people. I think that would be the best legacy that I could that I could hope for. Amen. All right, close us out. Any closing inspiration to our audience? They could be public leaders. They could be private leaders. They could be people just starting their career or people ending their career and trying to leave their own legacy. You know the industry well enough. Actually, before before I close, have you close us out, why don't, why don't I go ahead and make an announcement? So I am excited to welcome John Nelson back, not only as our chief financial officer, but as my business partner. He has bought into FA. Uh, so we're pretty excited to have him back. I think I know I'm a better leader and we are a better mm-hmm. company with him helping not only enable growth, but manage risk, as he as he pointed out. And so welcome back, John. <laughs> Thanks, BJ. And you know, the the the, uh, the experience we talked about at Carnegie Mellon has been absolutely awesome. I will cherish it forever, but I'm really looking forward to coming home, man. And I appreciate, uh, you know, I appreciate you reaching out. And I'm glad that we uh, that we could work out a, a thing where I'm I'm coming back to the this incredible company that you've built. And it's it's almost I, I've told you this a, a few times. It's it's almost unrecognizable in in many ways to me. And I hope you let me interview you someday soon on this podcast and I'll we'll get into some of that. We will. Changed. I, I like it. Let's do it. All right. Yeah, so yeah. close us out with any closing inspiration to our audience. I, I hope it's inspirational, but I, there's a, a, an author, Morgan Housel, author and investor, who said that before you invest in anything, ask what bet, what your bet is, what bet are you making? And he says that most struggle to answer that because usually it's that you can imagine a company like the one you're investing in doing well or, or kind of something vague, but you're not really making any kind of disciplined, rigorous, empirical decision when you make a bet. My bet on MCFA and on you and your leadership team is is not that. Mine is that I saw enough of this industry to truly see that your approach, BJ, is fresh and authentic and totally different than anything I ever saw in this industry. Um, I think the macro factors are at your back and the micro factors that you talk about a lot on this podcast and that you're focused on are, are really what are, what are going to um, get us over the top. So um, thank you. Incredibly excited to be here. And, and I'm making, and I'm making a big bet on you. So, so let's do it. He just went public with it. Now I'm accountable. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 
All right, John. Well, thanks for taking the time. Look forward to you joining the team and appreciate everybody listening. As always, if you're enjoying our show, please pass it along to somebody else who might appreciate our insights, our inspiration, our education. And uh, thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.